talking to providers way back when I started my career, I don't think I could have asked for a better baseline to understand healthcare because if you take a deep forensic look at basically every health plan in America, the number one asset that they own and operate is their proprietary provider network. The Blues, United, Cigna, Aetna, Centene, all of them take a lot of time, energy, expense, and pride into building, managing, and orchestrating their own contracts with providers throughout the country. Those providers are the mechanism of how those members get care. And financially, to your point a few moments ago about about banking, the, the discounts, the reimbursements, the savings that they've negotiated on those contracts, um, that drives the, the, the financial underpinnings of these health plans in a material way. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Health insurance can be a complicated topic. With years of experience working in the health insurance market, Bridget London is here with us to answer our questions about the complexities of the provider network side of healthcare. Today, Bridget is the founder of Leverage Health Solutions and general partner at HC9 Ventures. His extensive background in the healthcare industry and vast knowledge of U.S. health insurance have given him the expertise to help early stage companies build their business strategies and grow into the payer market. In this episode, we look at the complex relationship between the healthcare provider and payer and discuss the importance of consumer engagement for healthcare businesses. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And so uh, I'm so excited. We, you know, we we met what a couple years ago, I think, and you were on our advisory board as well. And um, I thought today will be really interesting for many of our listeners to hear your experience and your story. You have a lot of experience in healthcare, and one of the things that I mentioned to you earlier is that. Um, there's there's a lot of aspect within healthcare that is so many that oftentimes it's hard to understand what everybody else is doing. And I'm curious to hear from your experience, uh, different roles that you have done in the past and, and maybe give us a light in terms of like what, what they are. And so maybe uh, if you can go over a little bit about your story, uh, how you end up being in healthcare. Sure. Well, again, it is an honor and a privilege to be asked, and and uh, I hope that this conversation allows uh, all that are listening to learn a little bit about healthcare. Uh, my my story in healthcare uh, is that I was supposed to be a lawyer, and uh, I was introduced to a small group insurance brokerage firm in the Catskills in New York, and right then I learned how interesting it was to help small businesses get to find the right health insurance for them in 1992. Uh, A year or two later, we started what is called a PPO. And at that point, 
building what is known as a preferred provider organization taught me all the fundamentals of what is so important about the provider network side of healthcare. Uh, a lot of us use directories. We try to use uh, online provider searches to find the right doctor for our care. And I learned firsthand how to build those networks and how to then have health plans, employers, TPAs use those networks. And that was an amazing experience because if you think about what's happening as we enter in 2023, all the sophistication about value-based contracting, risk, upside risk, downside risk, it's all built around the aspect of the provider network. So that, that provider network business uh, called National Preferred Provider Network, which I was employee number one, eventually was acquired by the nation's largest administrator of fully insured health plans, a company called Health Plan Services. And that gave me the experience of learning what happens behind the scenes, the administration of everything from getting your ID card to answering the phone to sending that bill that nobody understands what that bill actually reads. As the story's told, uh, in 2007, I had the chance to do something different. Uh, in 2006, we had a pretty good year at Health Plan Services and uh, we outgrew scale. And then I had the chance to take some people's advice and quite frankly, start our business. Uh, it was originally known as the Lungeon Group because it was just me. <laughs> um, and luckily, my business partner joined uh, within a year. And for the last almost 17 years, uh, we've been on the ground floor and in the middle of helping early stage companies grow into the payer market, helping them with their growth, their strategy, their business development. And we've learned a lot of skills along the way as we've looked at almost 2,000 companies and enabled over 200 health plans to implement and utilize those innovative early stage companies, um, certain companies we all would know um, as we've been able to grow them. And then just two weeks ago, uh, we proudly closed our first ever venture capital fund. Uh, we raised $83 million under a business that I co-founded called HC9 Ventures, and we've led three deals and we have 130 plus healthcare executives as our limited partners. So I guess as, as I think about what I just explained, we sit in the middle of an amazing amount of, of education and uh, opportunity every single day um, uh, on behalf of both Leverage Health Solutions and HC9 Ventures. Congratulations. That's like really exciting. Exciting time to sit on a large capital in this kind of uh, difficult market to invest. Well, well, thank you. But I also owe you a thank you because you were the source of introduction on our third investment in XP Health, which came through the Roseman Institute. So thank you for introducing me to Antonio just a few months ago. That's great. Well, thank you uh, for that kind word. So you mentioned a little bit, I, I'm just curious. So insurance broker, when I think about, you know, I never really deal with insurance broker because as an individual in what does that mean? Like when you when you when you're you took that job, like oh, you know, work for an insurance broker. What does insurance broker do? Helping a lot of company do what? Well, so the, I I think the world of the insurance broker has changed dramatically over the last several years. And while we don't, uh, while we are not an insurance broker here at Leverage Health or HC Nine, if I think about the world of an insurance broker, the insurance broker today 
is a lot more of advisory services than just brokering an insurance policy. I think back in the in the 90s, we were basically helping a small business find insurance at the right price. It, it, it appears to us today with large brokers who have rolled up significant businesses in the small group market, for example, such as One Digital, um, they, they, they look more like advisory consultants than transactional brokers on behalf of the needs of an employer who has employees who need cost-effective quality healthcare as a benefit to retain those people. If you think about then the individual market, uh, whether it's the ACA uh, or, or, or other, that's a different type of, of, of way to procure insurance through websites, obviously on the government. The large-scale broker, we've never operated at that scale. Mm -hmm. uh, those are folks that truly are, understand uh, benefits almost as if they manage risk large employers um, in the industry. But back in the early 90s, we were helping small businesses just find people that would insure them. Mm -hmm. So now when you think about the uh, health plan, healthcare in insurance broker, which is an advisory, they work with a large employer, understand their needs. And then do they help design the plan and work with the health plan to come up with that product? Well, in certain categories, I think if you think about an employer group, you need to take a step back and think about what size is that employer group. So our business has less than 10 people on its health plan. We don't have a lot of choice. We, we, we will find an insurance carrier and we will pick the product that has already been pre-built with the right network of providers for ourselves and our, and our partners and our spouses and our children. If you're if you have hundreds of employees and you're self-funded, for example, which is you as a company fund your own cost and your own risk along with what's called stop loss to mitigate excessive uh, spend, you do have the chance to customize your offering. You could break apart your benefit package. You could pick your TPA, a third-party administrator who would administer the customer service and the claims and the billing, you could then piece together through your broker or consultant, your, your network, your, your care management company, your telemedicine company, your, your vision benefit, although we hope they pick XP. Mm -hmm. and, and all of those things put together, you can start to customize if your group size is bigger, of course. Uh, but if you're smaller, you can't break it apart and customize uh, the way the insurance market is today. And so when you said a TPA, many of the healthcare health plan company, they do serve as TPA, even though it's a self-funding by the employer. Is that correct or that's not the case? It, it, it is. It, in the 90s, it was very interesting. The blues, all most of the blues owned and operated name brand TPAs. And they offered it as if it was a separate company under the acronym TPA. But, but if you think about it, TPA is the back office function of a self-funded employer, and all health plans offer self-funded employer administration. Uh, whether you're a blue, Cigna is predominantly self-funded within their mix of lives, uh, if you exclude their Evernorth division. So the the, the, the the, the word 
the acronym ASO for self-funding needs a third-party administrator functionality, but there are other TPAs that are not owned by carriers. There are Back when, when we were building our businesses in the 90s, this country had hundreds of TPAs. There's probably only about 20 or 30 TPAs that are not owned by a health plan today that have much scale. And those TPAs, they also need provider networks. They need care management capabilities. They need to hire telemedicine vendors to piece together employee benefits for their groups. So the word TPA is a function not as much as a, um, as a as a business because health plans and independent TPAs all both offer that functionality. So just to clarify, like when you do when you're self-funding your health insurance your health for your employee is that the company is taking on the risk. When uh when a company pay a health plan, say like United Health or Cigna, Cigna get uh, keep uh, take the risk for providing that insurance, right? That's correct, because they would be fully insured. Um, and and when you are a large employer, if you're one of the jumbo accounts, you don't even buy stop loss for the most part because you have enough lives and enough spend and enough risk to mitigate just about anything. Um, a lot of unions and public sector accounts like school districts and counties they might be large enough to not buy stop loss, but they still will because they're public sector. But that's right. The, the larger accounts that are self-funded, they are basically managing their own risk. What do you mean by buying the stop loss? So it's, it's, it's almost, you can look at it like an umbrella policy, that if your spend gets beyond the trend line that you set on an individual, which would be called specific or in the total amount of spend for the whole group, which would pull, which would be called aggregate, the employer group would purchase, in, to use a common term, an umbrella policy, which is called stop loss, to mitigate the spend that goes above those predetermined spend lines. And there are many large companies that offer stop loss. Some of the stop loss carriers that are the leaders in the industry are also health plans, Cigna, Highmark, HCSC and others, for example. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So in a way, it's interesting how when you describe a lot of this uh, role and product of health plan and health insurance, it's very much like uh, your bank financial services. There's been a lot of people over the years that have tried to bring together wealth management and health management, uh, because at the end of the day, it, it it does sound the same. And if and and CFOs, as we all read, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head, but CFOs of large corporations, when you when you hear what they have to say about how their companies are doing, they know firsthand how much money they're spending on healthcare. Um, union leaders know how much they're spending on healthcare on a per 
member basis. Uh, so yes, it, it does have a lot of connotations to the financial sector. And so you mentioned, like you know, this is uh, every the costs incre- keep uh, increasing, cost of healthcare, and so everybody now talk a lot about the value based contract. And you mentioned earlier about you know the importance of the provider network. And tell us a little bit your you know experience when you said you you know how you built the provider network in the early nineties, and what you learned and what you know about it, like that people like me who don't know much about it. We just used the doctor. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's, it's, it's dramatically different. In, in the 90s, we were building a PPO for uh, traditional, uh, I would say, cost containment and indemnity plans. So our contracts were, if you can believe it, a percentage of bill charges in a lot of cases. If, if you took if you took a look back to then compared to now, the, the, the no one has contracts on a percentage of bill charges. Um, uh, the, 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 the sophistication today with value-based care and sharing risk or delegating risk to the provider community, I, I'm not quite sure I would even know. I'm not quite sure I know what that means today, let alone I definitely wouldn't have known what that means in um, 1993 and 1994. But talking to providers way back when I started my career, I don't think I could have asked for a better baseline to understand healthcare. Because if you take a deep forensic look at basically every health plan in America, the number one asset that they own and operate is their proprietary provider network. The Blues, United, Cigna, Aetna, Centene, all of them take a lot of time, energy, expense, and pride into building, managing, and orchestrating their own contracts with providers throughout the country. Those providers are the mechanism of how those members get care. And financially, to your point a few moments ago about about banking, the, the discounts, the reimbursements, the savings that they've negotiated on those contracts, um, that drives the, the the financial underpinnings of these health plans in a material way. And and what's happened over time is the the when I was growing up with my business partner with Charlie Falcone, when all these this country also was flooded with independent provider networks, PPOs, who did not take risk. And we sold these, we offered these networks to self-funded employers and TPAs, insurance companies. Now there's very few of those companies. Companies like MultiPlan and Zealous, that's mostly what's left at scale with uh, TRPN is still out there in some ways. But the the Uniteds and the Aetnas and the Cygnus and of course all the Blues, they own their own contracts with the providers and those proprietary contracts um, is, again, like I said, the most prized asset within a health plan, in our opinion. But it's interesting. And so uh, I have a couple of questions. And so now that many of the independent are, there's not that many left, they tend to be a large providers having contract with the blues. But you see that when the same uh, providers uh, have contract with the blues, they also have uh, contract with, you know, Signal, they have contact with United. It's almost like everybody's on with everybody. And as a consumer, we don't see the difference. Do we? Or 
You don't. You don't see the difference. So the what's different behind the scenes, which the average American um, has a sense of, I wouldn't want to call it entitlement, but it's just built into the mechanisms of health insurance unless you have a high deductible. At the end of the day, the consumer gets access to the doctor he or she wants. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the deductible and the copay you may have with your health insurance, whether you're an employer or fully insured, you, you may have a higher out-of-pocket or not, but the insurer has a certain discount level with that same doctor. So if, if Dr. Smith has a contract with United Healthcare and Blue Shield of California and SCAM in California, the discount that he or she has with each of those three health plans is most likely different. Uh, just because the doctor is in network or the hospital's in network or the outpatient surgery center's in network doesn't mean that the actual discount that that doctor has negotiated with the health plan is the same. In fact, inside of an insurance company, that doctor could have different discounts based upon different products that the insurance company offers into the marketplace. There's a lot of interesting complexity that happens behind the scenes between providers and health plans. Um, but to the average American, it's, it's, it doesn't really show up because your insurance product covers it and it's all built into the predetermined premiums and co-pays and deductibles. So, and then when, when a provider and health plan negotiate that contract, they tend to look, I guess, some company have a better leverage maybe because they have a bigger membership numbers. And what are the things that went through the variables of piece of the negotiating it's almost like Starbucks and Panera, right? You Do they really need to give out a lot of coupons for free coffee because people are coming every day of the week anyway? So the, the leverage points of negotiating with a hospital or a doctor, um, there's a few key characteristics. One would be volume, just, just like just like a Starbucks or a local restaurant. They might give out coupons to draw more people in. So if I'm a if I'm a if I'm a hospital or doctor, if I'm the only doctor or hospital in a rural town, that's a very hard position for a health plan to negotiate with that doctor or hospital because there's no leverage points. That's the only point of care in a rural community. So that's one example, and it's very challenging to a lot of health plans in the country, which is another reason why large employers are starting to negotiate with those rural hospitals and those rural doctor groups directly because they've got the leverage, because they've got the lives in that rural town. Walmart's done an excessive amount of that with their direct contracting initiative. But the key characteristics and the key levers that are are typically pulled are historical relationship between the, the provider and the payer. Was the payer a good payer? Did they pay on time? Did they pay accurately? Was it a good experience? So the administrative friction and or relationship matters a lot between payers and providers. B, density, the the number of lives that that payer can offer that provider in the following year. Um, Typically, volume matters a lot. Um, These days, risk. Providers and payers have an ongoing conversation about delegated risk and then administering the delegated risk. 
It's one thing to negotiate a risk contract. Then there's the next thing about managing it throughout the year. Um, and then and then I would just put the anecdotal side around that would be payments. Uh, how fast can you pay the provider? How accurately can you pay the provider? Um, doctors like to know not just uh, how much they're going to get paid, but when. And if, and if a health plan can impact the provider's receivables accurately and quicker, that also has a, a leverageable uh, point when it comes to the discount that's looking to be negotiated. So that's the really, I mean, so now I'm thinking, asking you a question about, so that's the relationship in the, uh, pay, the payer and the provider. And then, so now you've seen a lot of, you know, technology that the payers are interested in offering to their members. And that is the relationship between the payers and say the employer, right? Um, what are the what are the things that you see that is, uh, you know, like the wellness, for example, the mental health that is not offered in the brick and mortar? Now they go into the virtual technology side of things, and why is that important for a payers to offer that? To their uh, employer, because I think through that question, I think there's some there are some answers to that question that impact sales and marketing and product, and then there are some answers that that in, that are impacted based upon outcomes and quality of care. Um, so, and then of course, if you if you put COVID as an underlying attribute of that, well, that changed the game on your question quite a bit. But so, if if I'm a if I'm a payer. It's pretty competitive out there. Whether I'm a TPA or a Blue or a Cigna or an Aetna, it's 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 quite competitive um, uh, offering their products to employers, whether small, medium, large, or jumbo. So they, they they have to be innovative. They have to to offer products that are meeting the demands of the market, not just here in December of 22, but thinking about even 24. So um, whether it's behavioral health, virtual, physical such as our portfolio company, Forge Health, um, whether it's um, uh, telemedicine, um, not, and not just not just the, the telemedicine organizations like, like Teladoc and American Well, but also things that, that are specialty telemedicine, behavioral health and, and, and dermatology. So there's different aspects to why these pairs offer these solutions that are, that are I would call product marketing and sales to remain competitive, but then you, you need to put the word outcomes, right? So um, getting consumers, patients, members, whichever word we'll use to engage is, is one of the hardest parts of healthcare. Um, it, it doesn't matter about incentives at scale. It doesn't matter if it's wrong. It, it is hard to engage a person. So virtually, is a big trend versus physically. You think about one segment that we focus on here is virtual MSKPT. Even myself, getting me to the physical therapist, it's hard to do that on a, on a routine and repeatable basis if I were to have an injury. But virtual MSKPT is taking off because it's convenient, it's more cost-effective, um, you will do it on a more repeatable basis. And if you do all those things, you will probably prevent readmissions, going back to another MSK surgery. So outcomes are very important why they offer these, um, these solutions. And, and I think it's important to mention COVID. COVID taught us a lot of valuable lessons 
that you can receive care in ways that were a lot more than just the, the, the doormat of a brick and mortar facility. So in a way, all this technology is kind of like the provider network. If you have enough, then they, you create another technology provider network. I would think so, because if you think about some of these capabilities and technology, uh, unless it's a avatar and a library of just of, of data, there's usually a provider that is providing the care inside that technology app, behavioral health or telemedicine. So it, it does, in a lot of cases, come back to the network. Um, I was very early involved as as the Lungeon Group and Leverage Health in Teladoc. And, and the network game was very relevant um, back then in uh, 2007, 2008, because why would an individual doctor in their home, possibly in their pajamas, want to be in this telemedicine program if his or her phone wasn't going to ring? So there's always still a balance of the number of providers to the number of patients equaling volume to get those networks to have enough density to become relevant. Uh, so it's always that 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 chicken and egg. So yes, there is a network play in, in most of these technology solutions. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so, you know, I think oftentimes when uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, getting the patient or consumer to engage in healthcare is challenging. If you can make it easier, then what is the incentive for... Um, the payers, because especially in the fee-for-service world, there's the more, you know, the more you you spend uh, on healthcare, the more money they lose, right? Because they have to pay. So I think there's that one incentive, but is there like, there's a, like a threshold, like what is the right amount of um, saving before that is, makes sense for payers to- For a, pay, for a payer? Mm-hmm. To engage in it, to engage a person, to engage a yeah. Well, from the payer's point of view, it 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 depends on lines of business. If you're a if you're a commercial payer and you can get a patient, as we all know, to engage early in their healthcare journey. I mean, I'm 52. I assume, and I'm healthy, luckily. But if if a payer were to have engaged me in some form of wellness or just tracking my biometrics when I was, you know, 10 years ago. And if, if I were unfortunately not healthy today, they would have known something about me. So, so clearly technologically in engaging or just overall engaging a patient allows the risk bearer to learn a bit about that patient. So that is a big incentive for the payer. I also think there's an unwritten rule when it comes to loyalty. So if you think about banking, and this is just the world according to Richard, if you think about banking, every time you go to the ATM, that's a provider, that's a, that's a, that's an experience with the bank. Every time you use healthcare, it's an experience that is that is noted that if I'm a health plan and I've engaged in whether it's telemedicine or even going online to track my directory, you're building loyalty amongst that person. And where they're getting their healthcare. Again, whether it's a blue or United or a TPA. But the other segment of the industry where engagement is super important is Medicare Advantage. That the more times that that health plan, the MA plan, can engage and learn about that Medicare Advantage recipient, they are closing gaps, they are engaging with that person. And 
as CMS runs their their business with the MA plans, there's revenue uh, attached to those abilities to closing gaps for an MA participant. So I think your question depends on the line of business we're talking about. Mm. And so interesting, you said, you know, you compare it with the banking, like with banking, you, you decide, right? This is the bank that I'm going to use. And I change job. It's the same bank I use because there's nobody saying that I can't use the same bank. But with health insurance, you know, I remember when I was at Kaiser, their national account is one of the ones that makes uh, it's profitable and things are changing. Um, so but sometimes you hear payers like, well, we put all this investment and then by the time we reap the benefit, the employee move on to a different plan and they don't get the benefit out of it. Can you tell us more about that thinking? It's 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 unfortunately true. It's unfortunately true that if if you were insured, you referenced Kaiser. Whether if you're at Kaiser and and I mean, I guess I'll use the right. I'll, I'll use an example and. They engaged someone to um, who was, I guess, unhealthy or had a chronic condition when they became an insured and spent a lot of money getting that person healthier for whatever reason. And then that person either left and joined Aetna or Blue Shield or Blue Cross of California. The, the second health plan is now enrolling a much healthier person and Kaiser, to your point, invested a lot of dollars to make that person healthier, which is the right thing to do in healthcare. But from a financial point of view, Kaiser did not turn a profit on that individual policyholder. Um, I'm not quite sure how to address that question. It is there's a humanistic approach to it, but these these large health plans they are in it to impact healthcare, but also to be profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that is um, unfortunately there is a portion of the population that that happens with. Um, so I'm not sure what the right answer there is, uh, but it does happen. I feel like I think, you know, I think I saw data somewhere that uh, when you see the movement of people within uh, all the large health plan, they move around, between, you know, back and forth. So in a way, maybe, you know, this is more idealistic thinking that maybe our health plan should not worry so much about that because eventually they move around anyway, eventually they get to them. So maybe sometimes they don't need to think so much about like, well, I'm helping, you know, I spent all the money to make everybody healthy and they move somewhere else. And, but then after they move over there, they might come back to me. Well, it, it is, but at some point you, you, you would hope that you have that, that member for life as well, right? There are there are health plans that are investing in adolescents, and they're investing in 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 uh, they've products geared that are virtual first, uh, like a virtual like Anthem and others have a virtual first product. Um, so you're hoping that you're putting your arms around these folks, so they only buy health insurance from you, maybe until they enroll in Medicare and they age in. But to your point, people do bounce around and they churn because they change employers or their employer changes coverage, or they move. That's kind of, I think, one aspect of life, unfortunately. But um, people do move around insurance companies. Yeah, and I, I think it's like, I mean, I have so many questions around health plan because I think it's really um, fascinating, especially for a consumer. Oftentimes we just, you know, we got this health plan, we go to the doctor and somehow I got my treatment and I'm good. And, but... I can spend a lot of time asking y'all. Well, you would, you would hope that the person would, would have that experience. But unfortunately, 
that's uh, that's not the case. Uh, there's just there's too many there's just there's too many uh, hands in the pot, um, and I don't mean that negatively. Just th- this this industry and this country has so many stakeholders involved in every aspect of a single human being's healthcare experience, from who pays their claims to who answers the phone to who prints the ID card to the, the the doctors and the hospitals and then out of network and now telemedicine. I think people like you and I, Christine, were the family healthcare advisor. Um, it is hard to navigate no matter who you are and where you live. Um, and there's just so many bifurcated, non-integrated aspects. I'm not quite sure it's going to be solved while I'm, um, while I'm a uh, healthcare entrepreneur, but it's, it's, I'm up for the challenge, but there's a lot going on. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you're uh, generally healthy, you kind of don't see the complexity as much as the moment you got sick. That's when you realize there's so many pieces that you have to work with. So, but I want to ask you a bit more about the HC9 Ventures. And if you can tell us a little bit more about what you're hoping to achieve and what kind of companies that you are focusing on and what are the the uh, the the role that your team can provide to many of the companies in your portfolio company. Thanks for asking. So HC9 is a different type of venture capital firm. We are, as I've spoken to other sources of the media, we are the we are intentionally organized with only individuals with healthcare expertise as our only source of capital. So we built a community of investors, over 130 healthcare leaders contributed their own capital to make up our $83 million uh, first fund, which is very different because most funds, healthcare or non-healthcare, uh, grab institutional dollars, whether it's from family offices or in our industry, hospitals or health plans. We wanted to build this community. And the reason for it is because early stage companies, we like to say capital is a commodity. Uh, living where you live, Christine, or where I live in Chappaqua, New York, there's a lot of sources of capital. Um, but what's lacking traditionally, not traditionally, what's lacking almost generally across the early stage entrepreneurial sector of healthcare is the advice, the, the, the ability to help them grow, the connections, the operational expertise. And that's just not what myself and Charlie Falcone and John Gordon bring to the table as the founders, but that's what we call on within our investor community to come to the table if they're so willing to help these early stage companies as we build advisory boards or we we suggest chairmen of the board of certain companies so that we can we can surround these CEOs and their management teams with real help not just a check uh, so the businesses that we want to be in and so far in in 11 months we're really proud that we've started and closed an 83 million dollar fund we've led three deals We've held two investor meetings with our amazing healthcare leaders. Uh, last one had 104 of our LPs coming to Nashville. And we want to be in businesses whereby we can truly be engaged to have a seat at the table and help. 
again, not just to be another check or a name in a press release. So venture capital firms, I'm learning now that I'm a venture capitalist, needs, they all need to have a thematic approach. I'm not quite sure what I knew what that word was, but now I do. So our thematic approach is engagement. It is being able to be collaborative and truly help build these businesses faster and more effectively than they could have done for themselves. And quite frankly, maybe better than they could have done with other venture capital firms. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's some of what's our passion. We're building an amazing team as we speak of investor professionals and also putting a, a person in the middle of all these LPs and the investments to help uh, further accelerate the education and the and the uh, building of a community to surround our investments. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a little bit of a different answer when you ask the venture capital firm what they're focused on. Uh, we want to be different until we are able to grow fun too, and then probably do the same thing again. Yeah, uh, helping early stage companies, surrounding them with real expertise, not just capital. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing that uh, uh, knowledge. Uh, I learned a lot today from you about the whole health plan, the healthcare area. And uh, good luck with HC9. I think it's really exciting um, times. You. And there's a lot of exciting opportunity in the next years or so. Yeah, we, we really appreciate the relationship with you and your organization. I've enjoyed uh, collaborating and getting to know the team. And I look forward to furthering this relationship because you, you've created and you run an operation that, that I think is one of the greatest secrets in healthcare. And I'm, I'm just honored to be a part of it. So thank you for that, for that. And also thank you for inviting me to be part of your podcast. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.